This is a crowd podcast. I have a confession to make. I've been withholding evidence from you. There was a survivor in the back bedroom of House 2. Would you please state your full name? The reason I didn't tell you about Safa Yunus Salim Rasif, the 13-year-old girl and sole survivor in the back bedroom of House 2, was that I didn't want to confuse you. And where do you live? One, one second. One second. One night. This story is so convoluted, with so many players and so many twists and turns, that I've tried to tell it methodically, brick by storytelling brick. How old are you? Come on, brick. Fourteen years of age. I was afraid that if I gave you all the information all at once, Mike Maloney's blood spatter analysis, Mendoza's testimony, Tatum's testimony, Frank's failing memory, the 9mm shell casings, the aborted stippling test, the dismissal of charges, the immunity deals, and Safa, it would all be too much. I'm going to ask you some questions about November 19th, 2005. Do you remember where you were that morning? Our house. What would happen that day? But there's another reason I didn't tell you about Safa's testimony, and it has nothing to do with marshalling all the evidence into a coherent story. It was about emotion. You see, I wanted you to feel exactly what Mike Maloney felt when he learned that Safa's testimony had been withheld from him. What was your take on Safa's testimony as you were determining your forensic analysis? It had no play in my determining in forensic analysis. How could that be? I requested it several times through trial counsel. I think once or twice in writing, once or twice verbally. But it wasn't provided, so I assumed that it didn't exist. My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. Murder in House 2, Episode 9, Safa. Safa Yunus Salim Rasif was the sole survivor in House 2. Um, an IED was exploded uh, on the way that leads to our home, like around near the corner uh, that leads to our house. Do you remember what time of day that happened? In January 2007, just a few weeks after Frank Wooderich was charged with murdering her entire family, Safa gave a sworn videotape deposition to Marine Corps prosecutors. Who was at the house besides you and your father? Do you want the names? Uh, 
Safa's statement is a revelation. There's no other way to describe it. In a clear, calm voice, Safa retold the horror of what happened to her and her family in House 2. My, uh, when we heard the tapping on the door, my dad went to open the door. We had very, uh, lots of fire, uh, bullets were fired, you know, gunshots. Amazingly, all the details she laid out align perfectly with the physical evidence. The timing of the fragmentary grenade in the empty washroom, the position of her aunt just inside the bedroom doorway, and that of her brother and sisters on her parents' bed. Even Mendoza's incriminating statement that he opened the door and saw women and children alive, all of it is accounted for in Safa's testimony. And yet, somehow, Safa's statement was entirely missing from Special Agent Mike Maloney's forensic reconstruction of House 2. Was everyone besides her father in that room? How could that be? How could Mike Maloney, the government's own forensic expert, miss something so significant? The truth is, he didn't miss it. It was kept from him. I had heard that there was a survivor. I heard there was a statement that she had been interviewed and she had provided something. I requested it several times through trial counsel. I think once or twice in writing, once or twice verbally. But it wasn't provided, so I assumed that it didn't exist. The first time I became aware of it was during Article 32 when I was on the stand. And I was asked, did you take into account the statement of the survivor from that room? I stated, I'm peripherally aware that such a statement exists, but I've never seen it. And they said, well, what does peripherally aware mean? And I said, well, I'd heard that there was a survivor and that there was a statement, but I requested it and I wasn't provided it. Well, who did you request it? And I pointed to the prosecutor at that time. Uh, how many times? Several times. Would you like to see it now? Well, of course I would. Well, the Marine, the Marine came into the room, started fire. And what he did, because I threw myself between the bed and the wall, he put his rifle muzzle under the bed, started shooting, and then shoot at me. And when he started shooting, I left my leg, the bullet passed under my leg, went into the wall. I know where she was. I had a void area in the room I couldn't explain. A void area is where you expect blood spatter to be, but it's not because it hits something that's been moved. And it was a game changer for me. It was a, uh, you know, I, I don't want to ever overuse the phrase, but it was almost an epiphany of, I know what happened there now. Okay, we were all gathered in my, my mom's room and uh, one of the Marines came, he tossed a grenade. We backed up 
from the grenade and uh, he shut the door. The grenade did not go off. She talks about a Marine that crouched down, opens the door and throws a grenade in. And all I can think of is Mendoza's statement where he says, I went down the hall, I crouched down, I opened the door and I looked in. Kusiri was exactly there. The only thing I see is women and kids. I just laying down, it's clear, it's really clear so you can see exactly what's in there. You know, like... Okay, I'll get to that to, the, to a minute. Just go ahead and do what you did. Wait about the time that you did and then do what you did when you left. Okay, just take me through that. Okay, sir, I was just there, open the door, look exactly what's in there, and get outside. Hey, this guy, this guy is okay. About 10 minutes after he tossed a grenade, and he closed the door, then we heard the sound of water running in the bathroom, pipes breaking. 10 minutes span, you know, that she went and opened the door to look. She says after a period of time, nothing happened. And then the same Marine that threw the grenade came through the door shooting. Could she see the Marine shooting or did she just hear the shots going off? Okay, this Marine was the same Marine who tossed the grenade into the room. It's the same way that he came back. We had placed Wooderich in that room because of Tatum's statement against self-interest. So that's why Wooderich was the shooter in that room before Tatum. But here she's describing someone different. She's describing the man that threw the grenade in. And we have Mendoza stating that he opens the door and looks into the room. Same position, but without the action. I, for the first time, had serious doubt that Wooderich was the shooter in that room. Up until then, I had no trouble having him occupy that shooting position. But at that point, I had serious doubt that he's the one that was in that shooting position. It seemed more likely to me that Mendoza was the one in that shooting position. And it made sense given the rest of his statement that we had analyzed. Now, now what I'd like you to do is do the same thing, and I assume you had a rifle? Yes, sir. Please do it with the rifle. Uh, and then back up and, and do the same thing that you did, just like you would have walked down the hallway. Okay, in the moment I had a three-point sling. His weapon was at sling. Why? Maybe his hands were busy with the grenade. So pretty much the weapon was all tied down. I opened. And by then, just, I had a weapon just kind of like hanging, just with a three-point sling. And I don't think I just see just women and kids again and close doors there. Okay. When you say the weapon was hanging, that means you weren't ready to fire. No, sir. And that's your testimony? Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I'll take that rifle now. I've been doing this a long time. People never make an outright lie up about what happened. It's too hard to track. It's too hard to keep consistent. They change those portions that they don't want you to know about, but the rest is the truth. Mendoza is telling the truth there. He did go down the hall. He did open the door. He did see women and children. He did close the door. He did back out of the hall. All those things are the truth. But the circumstances he gives it to us under doesn't make sense. I'm seeing 80% truths. He's changing those parts of the story that he doesn't want us to know for some reason. So when the, when the one Marine came in and started shooting, what did you do? I 
I hid myself between the bed and the wall. What happened next? After after what happened, you know, I I don't know after he shot the marine and that I passed out. I don't know how long for, but when I woke up, you know, I was too scared to get up to see what's going on, but I, I could see the bodies. I tried to wake up my sister. My hand went through her head, so she was shot in the head. So my hand went into her head. Do you remember where you were when you found out about Mendoza's immunity? I can only describe the feeling as viscerally becoming ill. Here was a guy that was most likely responsible or involved in that action in that back bedroom. And he's granted immunity when we know that his story is not accurate. We know his involvement was at a much higher level than he states. And he's granted immunity. I just remember just being viscerally ill and saying, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. They're putting Mendoza on the stand and then they're going to put me on the stand, and I'm going to show that Mendoza's version of events isn't true. I didn't know what the strategy was. It wasn't making sense to me. We were being kept in the dark. And I just kept hoping that they had some big super picture they were aware of where all of this made sense, and that they weren't offering immunity to people that may very well have been involved in the killing. And people were being granted immunity, and other people were being prosecuted, and it wasn't based on a foundation of physical evidence frustrated, beyond frustration. It must be clear to you now that everything is revolving in the prosecution's mind around Frank Wooderich. Absolutely. What's clear at this point is Frank Wooderich is going to go down for something, and we're going to charge him with everything. And Frank Wooderich is going to be the personified evil out of Haditha. This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. This is Michael. And I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy, I don't have the time to cook. But I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals. And with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, 
and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When I first picked up my camera and started filming all the things you've heard in this podcast, the idea that the United States government would deliberately or intentionally hide the truth in this case was honestly the furthest thing from my mind. Maybe I was being naive, but I trusted the process. But early on, it became clear something was seriously wrong. Marines were being granted immunity, charges were being dismissed, and all of it was in direct contradiction to the government's own forensic evidence. I kept asking myself, why is the government prosecuting a case that can be disproven by its own forensic experts? Prosecutors seemed willing to say or do anything in order to convict Frank Wooderich, even if that meant granting immunity to Marines they knew we're lying. I'd like to call Sergeant Dylan Cruz to the witness stands. Please uh, raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the uh, testimony you're about to give during this deposition shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall be God? Okay, please take a seat. Sonic Dela Cruz was the driver of the second Humvee on the morning of 19 November 2005 and was initially charged with four of the five deaths at roadside. All right, now your your case was dismissed with prejudice. Is that correct? Yes, sir. This is Dela Cruz being cross-examined by one of Frank's lawyers, Lieutenant Colonel Colby Vokey. Then what does that mean to you? I can never be charged with You can never be charged ever again with, with the crimes that you were charged with. The false statements yes. and those murders, right? The five false statements, the five murders, correct? Yes, Never again can you be charged with those ever, right? Yes, I think Dela Cruz was clearly one of the, the most dishonest witnesses that you could ever put on a witness stand. Colby. It's almost hard to imagine if you were an attorney putting him on as a witness because it's like you know he's perjuring himself. How could you not know he's perjuring himself? He admits to perjuring himself. He admits to perjuring himself. That's right. 
Now, when you testified at the Article 32 for Lance Corporal Tatum last month, you said, no, there was no incoming fire. Right? So, is this another thing that you lied about? Or are you just mistaken? I did lie about that thing. Frustrating from a, your point of view as a defense attorney? Absolutely. I mean, of course. Hatham. Frustrating not just as an attorney, but as a human being who needs to, who, who is, is interested in understanding the truth of what happened. In the immediate aftermath of the IED attack, maybe a minute or two after the explosion, the Marines shot and killed five Iraqi men who had pulled their car off to the side of the road. Frank claimed that after the IED blast, he saw Delacruz shouting and running towards the five Iraqi men. The Iraqis turned and tried to run, so Frank took a knee and fired his weapon. The prosecution claimed otherwise. Based on the testimony and sworn statements of Sonic Delacruz, the Marine Corps charged Frank Wooderich with walking up to the Iraqi civilians, demanding they get on their knees, put their hands above their heads, and then executed all of them at close range. But like so much else in this story, Dela Cruz's sensational allegation was not supported by the forensic evidence. In fact, Special Agent Brady's official reconstruction at Roadside concluded there was no possible way for Frank Wooderich to have shot and killed those civilians. Instead, according to Tom Brady, the primary shooter at Roadside was Sonic Delacruz. It was around five o'clock in the evening in Carlsbad, California, south of Camp Pendleton. I'm there uh, watching Delacruz play out positioning with a prosecutor. Tom was the last interview I conducted for this podcast. He was an even more reluctant witness than Mike Maloney. If Mike is something of a lovable bull in a proverbial china shop, Tom is the ultimate team player. Even-tempered, unfailingly loyal. The idea that Tom would publicly speak out against the NCIS or the United States Marine Corps, two institutions he had dedicated his life to, was something he was profoundly reluctant to do. But Tom, like Mike, was upset by the way Haditha had been prosecuted. Upset by the lack of accountability in this case. So, after years and years of being badgered by me, Tom flew up from his home in Jacksonville, Florida, to Washington, D.C., which is where he finally told me the truth about the government's decision to dismiss Sonic Dela Cruz's charges and grant him immunity. So it's being narrated for me as Dela Cruz is out in a parking lot of this hotel. And he talked with a, a prosecution team. There was dialogue, you know, not so much shouting, but they were, he was at a distance. So he was trying to show us distance, perspective and distance of where the players were. I recall just quickly into this, quickly into this narrative, it just wasn't supported for me. It just, it just didn't make sense to me. He was changing his position and he was prescribing the majority of the shots, the end, the fatal shots, uh, to Staff Sergeant Wooderich, that Staff Sergeant Wooderich was not taking a knee, that he actually approached and came and walked in and around the deceased at roadside and then shot them all, I believe, in the head. So there was a, there was a, obviously a suggestion of execution. 
again, very intimately involved with this case, knew my case facts. I mean, I lived and breathed this. So as he was explaining his situ his narrative, his new statement, and, and we're, we're going through the distances, his distances weren't necessarily off. His positioning didn't make sense based on the wounds and the, the topography of the site and previous statements. So I, I it just, there's no other way to say it. It just was not supported. And it, I quickly was able to recognize that it was not supported. So the prosecutor was with me at the time. We were side by side. I was outside in the parking lot pretty much. I just advised the prosecutorial team, whom was ever there at the time, that I just didn't, this, this data, it does. I don't need to change anything. I'm not using this data. I, it's not, I don't believe that this is supported. This is not what my analysis shows. I was just, I was in opposition to his, his statements. So I don't know how else to put it other than it didn't, He's lying. it didn't fit for me and it doesn't, yeah, it's, it's lying is probably the, the most accurate way to state it. Dela Cruz was not telling the truth. Tom's partner, Mike Maloney. And you yeah, let his, the government know that? Absolutely. Absolutely what? Absolutely let people know that opinion in the prosecution team, that they're making a deal with the wrong guy, that the primary shooter at roadside is Dela Cruz, not Wooderich. And Dela Cruz is pushing everything off on Wooderich, not only, but not even saying that we were in those positions shooting, but then bringing Wooderich up the road and having him control those people, kneel them down and execute them. It did not happen that way. Putting Dela Cruz on the witness stand, it almost seems like desperation to me. Colby. And it's clearly giving immunity to somebody who you know is not going to tell the truth. Isn't that a crime? Well, I, it's certainly an ethical challenge, that's for sure. According to Mike Maloney, the United States Marine Corps withheld from him testimony of the sole surviving witness in House 2. According to Tom Brady, the United States Marine Corps dismissed Sonic Dela Cruz's charges and granted him immunity after he concluded that Dela Cruz was responsible for the deaths at roadside. And this doesn't even touch on Mendoza's testimony or the fact that he too was granted immunity or Tatum's charges being dismissed even though he told the government he had positive identification of a child and fired his weapon anyway. All of it struck me as deeply corrupt and designed to mislead the public to just one conclusion. Frank Wooderich alone was responsible for all the horrors of Haditha. Is it possible that they needed to make it the responsibility of one bad actor less their training, their rules of engagement, the way that they were prosecuting the war, I think would be held a, accountable? I think there's a definite advantage to having one evil rogue sergeant compared to a rogue squad or a rogue fire team or a rogue platoon that's out shooting women and children. Or a rogue Marine Corps. Or a rogue Marine Corps. Yeah, I think having it the responsibility of one individual is by far, uh, I'm not going to say preferential, but certainly from public appearance, that works a whole lot better than uh, we train our Marines to do it. You can't say that. Uh, women and children, they don't matter. You can't say that. This uh, fire team, this squad was just bad. You can't say that. 
We had one Marine that under the pressure of the day cracked and did horribly evil things, and he'll be punished for it. That one you can say. And so you have to scapegoat, Frank? This is my opinion. It would seem to me from the very beginning, there was a single, there was an eye single to Frank Woodrich being responsible for what happened at each stage of Haditha, both in actions indeed as a leader and as an individual trigger puller. That's okay if they really believe that. That's not turning him into a scapegoat. That's okay if they really believe it. I agree with you completely. But when the forensic evidence indicates that that's not true, and they choose to disregard the forensic evidence to cling to that theory, that's a problem. Then you have to wonder, why do they do that? Is it because it serves some greater purpose on having one bad Marine on one bad day? Or is it because your professional reputation is tied to the fact that this is the story that you've sold to everyone and you find that you can't back out of it? I don't know what the motivation or the reason is. I'm going to ask you a straightforward question. See if you, right? No, no, sure. Was Frank Wooderich consciously scapegoated by the Marine Corps prosecutors in this case? Yes. Next episode, the court-martial of Frank Wooderich. Counsel, please rise. Sergeant Wooderich, it is my duty as military judge to inform you that this court-martial finds you guilty. You may be seated. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniot, with additional editing by Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulkhart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. If you want more Murder In-House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for Murder in-House 2. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, try a Crowd Network original called Death of a Sports Star. Each episode is about the life of someone who sadly died way too young. The story of Flojo, the fastest woman in history, is really worth listening to, as are the episodes about Kobe Bryant and Payne Stewart. Just search for Death of a Sports Star in your podcast app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. 
the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.